welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. And now let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Joe Sinnott, executive coach and host of the Energy Detox podcast. I always love having a fellow podcaster because it makes for great conversations. So we can certainly talk about that because I'm curious how you got into it. But Joe, first and foremost, where are you joining us from? Today? I am here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That is pretty cool. And so I have, there's a, there's a piece of my heart actually that is tied pretty deep to Pittsburgh. And if anyone's listened to the podcast long enough, you know that I'm originally from Canada and I started with Canadian Energy Services and we had bought out a company and I was just a young, eager beaver at the time, but the COO came up to me and said, hey, would you ever consider going to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? We just purchased a company who's breaking ground up there as the Marcellus Shale is kicking off. And before he finished his sentence, I said, yes, my bags will be packed tonight. When do we go? So anyway, Pittsburgh was my first experience in you know, U.S. shale. And it was, again, I moved there in 2010. I actually lived in Cannonsburg at the Hilton Garden Inn for about six months. And then I ended up moving to Southside and lived in little apartments, kind of close to Cheesecake Factory there. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At first it was a culture shock to be honest. Moving from Calgary to Pittsburgh was quite different, but then I really, you know, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed going back. The people are great. And it's just a neat spot. And of course, oil and gas, mainly gas has, has turned a lot of things around up there. But anyway, I, I do like Pittsburgh, Ghost Dealers, the Pirates, everything else that comes along with it. It's a cool spot. And some of the nicest golf courses I've ever been to are up there too. Do you golf? I enjoy golf. It doesn't happen all that much thanks to the demands of, of the little ones. But I agree with your assessment. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of golf courses, plenty of interesting terrain here that you don't get in, in every part of the United States. And Certainly as far as your choice or I don't know how much of a choice it was, but your ultimate living in the South side, obviously that means you got pretty good flavor for, for some of Pittsburgh nightlife as well. So, so yeah, it sounds like you got to see it all. And, and I agree with yeah. your assessment of the area. Yeah, no, actually one of the coolest experiences, it was Halloween. I was, you know, me and a buddy were rocking out and, you know, just kind of going from bar to bar and we had our costumes on just having a good time. And all of a sudden we were walking on the sidewalk in this, big black, I think it was maybe like a Yukon or Cadillac. I don't know what it was, but this group of guys gets out and they're huge. And I kind of look and, and I had to take a second look and it was actually Heinz Ward dressed up and he popped out and was walking around with some of his, I mean, entourage. And then people started coming up and taking pictures and he was, you know, kind of just partying with the crowd for a little bit. And I don't know where he went, but yeah, it was, that was like, wow, that's, 
cool. You don't see that every day. So that, that was one of my, you know, highlights of being in South. It's great. And you hear a lot of stories about that with Pittsburgh. I mean, the, the size of the city, you know, everything is so accessible. So you have those run-ins with celebrities and athletes and, and all of that. And, and I think that's just, it fits the culture of the area, right? I mean, it just fits this, you know, this Pittsburgh pride thing, which permeates things, but also the fact that again, it's, we're not a huge sprawling city. It's, it's all, you know, it's, it's all relatively compact, at least as far as, you know, a lot of the businesses and sports and the arts and theater and all those things kind of converge. And, and again, I think it kind of boosts that pride because you do have access to so many people and things that, you know, you might not yeah. get and certainly in more rural areas or, or even in some larger cities. So yeah, it's a great place to be. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Before we get going too deep here, I do want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. And if you want to dive even a little deeper, check out Coldboard Technologies. They've done some very fascinating work and they've got some technology that ties right into this. And that's, you know, check them out. Brett Shell is the one leading that up. I had him and another gentleman from Technic FMC on the podcast a while ago. So yeah, please support the show by checking them out. Again, automation is at the forefront of attention right now, and, and they're certainly leading the way. So Joe, let's start off. I'm always curious, and, and you seem like a very innovative type of gentleman. How are you innovating this year? And whether that's business, marketing, technology, or even personal branding, what would you say in 2021 is, is allowing you to innovate beyond of what you would have normally done otherwise. Yeah, I think, you know, again, coming out of 2020 and into 2021, the biggest innovations are around time and maximizing my time, which again, leads into every area of my life. So yeah, whether it's marketing, whether it's building a business, whether it's working one-on-one with clients, whether it's family related, a lot of the innovations are around time and really trying to say, uh, you know, do two things at once when it makes sense. So whether that means having more business conversations when out for a walk, trying to get some exercise or ingesting news and podcasts again while trying to do something else that's productive out in the yard. Again, I mean, it's not terribly innovative, but those are the questions is, you know, how might I still stay connected to people, but not have it completely erase my ability to do anything else? So that's probably the biggest, at least area of innovation. You know, that's just trying to Again, ma- maximize the the one natural resource that is is limited for everybody, which of course is time. So, do you have any tools for success, or, or how are you doing that specifically? Has any are you still trying to figure that out, or is there anything that you've come across or solved with you know having that question in mind? Some of the low tech things, of course, are finding the optimum speed to again listen listen to podcasts or other you know news snippets and stuff. So you kind of get used to listening to things that at maybe a little bit faster speed. Again, maybe not the most innovative thing, but but also recognizing, you know, when you ask that question, when you ask the right question, all right, you know, how could I ingest more in less time? You know, sometimes there's a very simple answer and it's tapping, you know, 1.5 X on your, on, you know, whatever you're, you're listening to. So again, not the most maybe high tech or, you know, wow solution to this problem of limited time, but you know, there's times where that makes sense. And, and you got to recognize that there's tools out there that, you know, that are, don't have to be complicated for you to, to do the job better and more efficiently. Yeah, no. And I, I think that's one thing that a lot of people have experienced throughout COVID and the 
you know, having the physical distancing and working from home is really maximizing the time. I mean, I guess it's a trade-off because you trade, you know, say that commute for time inside the house. And so, you know, maximizing the time you have at your desk where you're not driving two hours. And especially here in Houston, I mean, people are commuting could be 45 minutes up to an hour and a half a day, you know, and while that time for me was spent listening to podcasts and I actually listened to them on 2X and back when I was listening to it on the podcast app for Apple, 2X was the fastest it could go. It may be different now, but Spotify has then, you know, increased their rate to which you can listen it to 3X, which my brain cannot process <laughs> things that fast, but I've gotten to, depending on the podcast, I've gotten myself up to two and a half and have still managed to hang on. But again, everyone, you know, speaks differently and, and depending on the quality of the audio, I think it's hard to listen to things more than 2X, but there's there's about a handful that I do listen to more than that. And yeah, it's like, how much more can you cram into your head? And, but I think it's like anything you adapt and your brain can certainly adjust. And so now when I listen to things on one X or just irregular speed, it sounds like they're, you know, talking slower, there's something wrong. It doesn't register quite as well. So I have to listen to things faster, but my wife is, she's a, she's a one X and she's like, I don't know how you do it. Like she'll get in my car sometimes and it'll automatically connect to Bluetooth, which is connected to a podcast I was listening to. And she's like, it's not, you're listening to chipmunks again. What are you doing? Like, how do you listen to this? But no, I'm a big proponent of, tr- of trying to do that in audiobooks too. And, but it's funny because we're in, we're in such an age of just abundance of information and more and how can you be connected more? And, you know, I don't know. I wonder if at one point, like what's the tipping point because we are so connected and we are trying to maximize the time and value. It's, you know, it's important to unconnect and and slow down. Do you do anything to kind of, you know, sort of flip the game over a little bit every once in a while to, to let the brain relax instead of just trying to maximize your time? Do you do sometimes, what do you do for just relaxing? Well, again, the old school approach is to actually just read a book because you're not going to, you know, you're not going to read it at 2x necessarily. And it's nice to disconnect. You know, you, you, <laughs> yeah. you set aside your phone or if you have a, you know, smartwatch and actually, when possible, just sitting and reading, like, you know, <laughs> feeling, you know, an actual book or, or a magazine or something like that. And I find that's, it's a good way to slow down and just be focused on one thing and to get away from, Again, the temptation to just constantly cram everything in because you can, because it's dangerous, right? I mean, there's there's trade-offs to that, you know, being able to listen to something at 2X, for example. Clearly, if it's something of importance, your ability to actually have some of that stuff stick is limited. But if you know why you're doing it, if you're if you're doing it because, you know, maybe you're you're looking for that that diamond within a, a 60-minute podcast and you can listen to it at, you know full speed and then, you know, just happen to catch that one thing that makes sense. If you're doing it for that reason, it makes sense. But in other settings, if you're having a conversation with somebody, clearly, you know, you want, you want to go as slow as possible. You want time to be able to think and process and use some of that extra brain capacity to ask better questions. So at the end of the day, it's, it, you know, comes back to just being conscious of what you're doing because, Again, it's it's tempting, and I see it all the time. People, this hyper productive society where we can have access to all this stuff, and we can just you know put the pedal to the metal and and you know pat ourselves on the back because we did twice as much work than we would have otherwise, without realizing that that comes at a cost. So you know, long with an answer to maybe how I slow down, but I try to be conscious about those times when I say, look, I don't want to be listening to anything. You know, I don't I don't want exposure to anything. You know, I, I want if I've spent you know pick amount of time ingesting all this stuff. Now I want some time for my brain to actually process it, you know, and, and to do it consciously. So it's, you know, again, I, I find reading is a good way to do it, but probably the, the higher level thing is setting aside 
my phone, setting aside my computer, setting aside my watch is as difficult as that can be. And then just letting your body and your brain and, you know, do what it wants to do, which is just pour through all of this great stuff that you've, you've put into it before you move on to the next binge of content, right? Yeah, no, because I mean, we, as much as we'd like to think we're robots and technology may be heading that way, but we still are human and we need time to recharge and, and flush the system. So Joe, I'm curious, are you from Pittsburgh originally or where are you from? I'm not. I'm from Northern New Jersey, about 15 miles outside of New York City. Oh, wow. So interesting thing about New Jersey. So I, one of the gentlemen in my graduate class is from New Jersey. He lives in Denver now, but he's from the Jersey Shore. And it was funny because we had a meeting last night for our class and we were talking, he, we're almost done this semester. And then he's going home to Jersey after. And I was asking about Jersey Shore, the show, because, you know, being from Canada, all that stuff you see on TV is like, you know, it's fascinating. It's like, oh, is it like that over there? And this and that. And but he's such a good guy and he loves Jersey. Like he's just, I mean, everyone loves where they're from, but there, there's a certain ring to when he starts talking about Jersey, how much he loves it. And so do you miss it? Do you want to go back? Do you love Pittsburgh more? I mean, you know, yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, so a couple of questions there. The first off, you know, you know, I guess, do I love New Jersey? Did I love it? I think the answer is, is yes. I think if nothing else, I appreciated how lucky I was to live in New Jersey and to have access to, again, New York City close by, the beach close by. Believe it or not, there are rural parts of New Jersey. It is the Garden State. A lot of people don't realize it. So yeah, I think I appreciate being able to grow up there and having access to, to so many different things. Although I didn't, realize that until I went away to college and had to defend New Jersey. I mean, kind of almost like you said, it's like, wow, you know, people are surprised when, you know, you meet somebody from New Jersey who actually might be somewhat, you know, nice and, and engaging and, and not a jerk. And just like, wait a second, you know, these people from across the country who are, who are, you know, bad mouthing New Jersey, who immediately gave me the name Dirty Jers just because I was from New Jersey and that was their association. You know, I didn't realize until then how, well, again, how lucky I was to live there. So it was a great place to, to grow up. I guess I have some some Jersey pride, but that being said, I can't imagine living anywhere else. I can't imagine my kid growing up anywhere else other than Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh, like you know, okay. at the opening, you know, we have access to so much. You know, we have, you know, even some of the intangible stuff. You know, having four full seasons, having the topography. Yeah, we're a little bit further from the beach, but it's just the people yeah. here. I think it's just a nice mix of things, and you know, you can oversimplify and say that you know, people out here are nicer than New Jersey, and I think that's a fair statement. Driving across the state, which I've done many times from New Jersey through Pennsylvania, there was always a noticeable difference as you moved westward, just in terms of going into a McDonald's or something and how much, you know, people actually start to say, you know, thank you. And, you know, like, you know, service with a smile instead of service with a scowl, as my, my father used to say. It was just funny. You could actually see that shift over the, you know, three or 400 mile journey there and, and how people got, you know, became noticeably nicer. So, so yeah, so I love it here. My family loves it here. And, and I certainly have become an adopted son of the Pittsburgh region. Okay. Okay. So let's talk of energy. I mean, obviously this is where we're here and, and I certainly am interested in the executive coaching side of what you do, but you know, backing up early in your career, you have a pretty ex you know solid experience within oil and gas. According to LinkedIn, you spent, I think, quite a few years, 11, if I remember correctly, over at EQT. But talk about the transition away from EQT into doing what you do now, which I would imagine is your passion. It's something that maybe you wanted to do for a long time, but you finally got the opportunity to. Maybe it was with due to COVID or whatever the case may be. But I'm interested in you know, your experience working for, you know, arguably one of the best gas producers in the nation to then, you know, leaving, maybe it was the close to the time of the rice acquisition. I'm not sure. 
but then doing what you're doing now. Can you get into yeah, that? Yeah, of course. And, you know, we'll start off. It My departure very much had to do with the rice acquisition and ultimately sort of the takeover, if you will, in 2019. So throughout my 11 years, yeah, I was lucky to be yeah, a part okay. of the growth of EQT. And that included the acquisition of rice in 2017. And then the proxy battles that ensued and, and ultimately the sweeping change of management that occurred when Rice and a lot of former people from Rice came back to EQT, which meant that me and many other people in a leadership position, you know, we our time was about to come to an end at EQT, which which was fine. So, you know, one advantage of all of that is that me and, and a lot of other folks really, you know, we had a couple months heads up knowing that this was going to come. So we had that time to slow down, as we talked about earlier, and and think and process and ask ourselves, all right, well, what is it that we enjoyed about our time at EQT and the things that we've done or prior experiences and energy before that? And it became very clear that the things that I enjoyed and that led to whatever level of success I had had really centered around what you could call coaching and leadership development. And a lot of those, you know, I don't know, sometimes vague characteristics of my roles that were very different from the technical responsibilities I had. And so when it came time to end, Justin, it, you know, became very clear that I could take my experience and turn it into something that sounded like executive coaching. And, and that's, again, it is executive coaching. That's, that's what I'm doing now. So so that transition, again, was aided by my, say, forced departure from, from EQT, but you know, it was aided by the opportunity that, that I had or, or was given to look for something new and the time that I had to you know, make sure that I didn't just slide into something that seemed like what I was doing before and, and you know, maybe it was something that, that was a bigger shift and could be more you know, sustainable and, and fuel whatever passion I had. And that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. So did you, I mean, before, I mean, early in your career, maybe even at a younger age, did you always have sort of a knack or a passion or an interest in coaching? I mean, was it, did you start off doing, you know, sports or was it, you know, through your career, you identified some of your strengths were leadership and coaching to which then you decided, Hey, I can actually create a business out of doing something like this because I'm good at it and I do love it. But is this something that stemmed it from a younger age or, I mean, at what point in your career or life did you say, you know what, like, I think I can coach people. The realization that I, I could coach people, let alone coach people for a living, it didn't come until that, you know, transition period away from EQT. Now, I think with the benefit of hindsight, when you look back and you say, you know, again, oh my gosh, that's in large part what I was doing and what I did enjoy. I enjoyed, you know, teaching people, enjoyed, you know, even you know, starting off for Schlumberger and you're offshore and it's the whole, you know, teaching trainees. Well, I enjoyed, you know, sharing what limited knowledge I knew and, and helping people along and that carried through all along. So, yeah, so I don't think there was ever a conscious desire to do this. There was never a conscious desire to be a coach or, you know, anything even under that umbrella, whether you call it a teacher or mentor. But when I look back, you know, really I had been doing it and I had been enjoying it. And Enough people seem to suggest that maybe I was even halfway decent at it. And so, you know, pull all that together in 2019 and say, all right, well, okay. let's see what we could do here. Wow. So how would you define executive coaching? Because I think a lot of, in you know, not trying to, I guess just through observation, there's a lot of noise out there with regards to, you know, leadership coaching and sales coaching and life coaching. And I feel like everyone's confident in their ability to do so. And there's masterminds and eBooks, but what does executive coaching mean to you? Yeah, so 
again, the executive title for coaching to me just means that it's a person who recognizes that he or she has an impact on a very you know, wide range of, of people and processes. Because that's what an executive is at a company, right? It's you know somebody who can make decisions that impacts every facet of the company, all kinds of stakeholders, whether they're, you know, they're customers, they're vendors, certainly every employee to some degree is impacted by that executive. And that carries through to honestly things that sound like life coaching or business coaching or whatever it happens to be, because you know, at the end of the day, Justin, you know, you make a decision, you make a decision as a father and a husband, you know, you're an executive, right? You make a decision that's going to impact the finance department of your family. That's going to impact the education department of your family, the athletic department of your family, right? I mean, you are an executive. So it's this executive mindset, honestly, more so than, you know, whether you're a C-suite, you know, executive or something like that. It's really just recognition that the decisions you make impact a whole wide variety of stakeholders. And, you know, to me, that's what sometimes can differentiate executive coaching from maybe life coaching, which might be focused more on an individual or business coaching, which might be focused on the bottom line growth of a company or wellness coaching, which might be focused purely on, you know, health and well-being. Executive coaching encompasses really all of that. So that's how I would draw a distinction between maybe some of the other coaching that's out there. In terms of, you know, now how that coaching differentiates from some of the things you mentioned, the, you know, overwhelming number of masterclasses and self-help books and podcasts and, you know, the 16,000 LinkedIn learning options that are out there, you know, coaching in general is, should be more specific, you know, more individualized and therefore can help people make, you know, generally speaking, faster, more confident decisions than they would if they're just out there on their own. Again, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, ingesting all of this stuff and trying to sort through it and trying to make sense of it. A coach is there to help them make sense of it, help connect things together and help them you know, get back on a, a path that makes sense instead of finding themselves on a thousand different paths just because they're there and they're accessible. Because just because you can, again, ingest all of this material doesn't mean that's going to lead to any meaningful shift or certainly may not lead to any sort of sustainable success or any sustainable approach to and whatever challenges you have, whether they're business, whether they're personal. So again, that's the distinction between a coach, I would say, and a lot of those other things is that that personalized approach, that individualized approach, which can lead to faster, better, more confident decisions than if you're just out there on your own and trying to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess a couple of questions come to mind. Initially, when I think of a coach, I mean, I grew up playing sports. I was 90% of my life growing up, you know, of course, having coaches, assistant coaches, it was the go-to, it was the one, you know, steering the ship, you know, managing everybody, putting the right people in the right places. But it, was, it wasn't just a one-time thing. Like a head coach doesn't come in at the beginning of the season and say, okay, here's what we do. Here's where I need you to think to go. Here's some plays and off you go. It's, you know, they're there with you every step of the way from cradle to grave of the season or, you know, whatever that looks like. So for you, for coaching, are you coaching people throughout a certain period of their life or, or to explain the scope of work for you when you're coaching somebody? or maybe a team or what that ever Sure. Well, whether it's an individual or a team, typically there is some defined time frame, And typically it's at least six to 12 months because to your point, just like with a sports coach, it's not just a one-time, here you go, here's the plays, you know, here's how you hit a baseball and you're done forever. So it is over a longer period of time for two reasons. One, part of the value of coaching is that a coach is there almost in your back pocket and you don't have to wait two weeks to the next 
session or whatever to make a decision. You, you, know, you pick up the phone, you text, email, call, whatever. And that's part of the luxury of having a coach is that you don't just need to sit there and stew. You can you know, you can just like in, a, in sports, right? You don't, you don't have the luxury in the middle of a game to just, you know, pause or call unlimited timeouts or whatever. No, you, you need to make a quick decision. And that's what a coach can help you is make quicker decisions. So, and then when you do that okay. over a longer period of time, now you start to develop some patterns and you start to recognize some of the, in some cases, barriers or hurdles that hold people back from making better decisions or on a more positive side, some of the very real tools, again, just like in sports, you know, just, you know, certain things that, that might work in certain circumstances, you know, you have the ability to pick up some of those, try them out and hopefully carry those well beyond the coaching engagement. So, so it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of lifeline and it's a little bit of, yeah, you know, helping, helping try new things and helping, you know, build up certain muscles again, to, to go back to the sports analogy that could be used well beyond any sort of, you know, official end of the coaching engagement. Gotcha. So how would you describe an ideal candidate that could find value in your services? Like when I see executive coach, I think, oh, well, unless I'm an executive, maybe I don't you know, fit the mold for who you're trying to bring in under your system. But can you describe, you know, if, I mean, what would make an ideal situation for someone to reach out and to, to really benefit from what you offer? Sure. Well, for me in particular, the ideal person is in the oil and gas industry. You know, one of the things that differentiates me from and the thousands or millions of other coaches out there is that I am focused on the oil and gas industry. My experience in the oil and gas industry helps me help people better and faster and more effectively than, than if I weren't in this industry. So first and foremost, at least for me, you know, people in the energy industry, that's, that's who I serve. As far as where they're at in their careers, really, Justin, it's anywhere on a spectrum. It could be somebody helped people that are still in college that are trying to sort things out all the way through people that have been around for, you know, 30, 35 years that are just looking to, you know, to, you know, spend a couple more years adding some value and, and you know, building, you know, the end of their legacy, if you will. So those are sort of the, the populations that I serve anywhere across that spectrum and certainly don't have to be executives. They don't have to be, you know, on a, a set path within a company. A lot of people that are in transition certainly can benefit from coaching because it can be overwhelming to, to do it all on your own, as much good material as there is out there. So that's sort of the general population. As far as the, I don't know, requirements, if you will, prerequisites, the three things that I insist on basically are, are one, that people are open to the idea of coaching. And that doesn't mean you can't be skeptical of whether it's going to work or not, but I want people that acknowledge that, hey, you know what? Yeah, I think there's, there's some value this to this. There's some potential value. And obviously if that's somebody who's, you know, working for a company and they're being told that they're going to be get a coach. That's that's usually when it's most important, right? Because you don't want to be working with people that are just out there to to almost prove that yeah, coaching is it's a bunch of BS. And and quite frankly, in, in an industry like oil and gas, you know, there is more skepticism. But skepticism is okay. A you know, complete attitude that this isn't going to work is not. So that's the first requirement, if you will. The second one is that people are thinkers. They're able to to connect disparate things in in their lives and bring them together to make sense. So they're able to connect some things in their personal life to their business life or, you know, to their sports experiences to a decision that they have to make as they implement some new software product, for example. And I'm there to help people do that. But if, if again, if I'm working with somebody who isn't able to connect the dots like that, it, you know, it lessens the value that coaching can bring. And the third requirement that I have is that people have a sense of humor that people are able to laugh at themselves, they're able to laugh at their situation, they're able to laugh at the absurdity sometimes of the oil and gas industry, because without that, again, it makes it very difficult to 
dig deep into, into somebody and extract some of the things that might be holding them back or extract some of the things that you know, they've almost lucked into and, and didn't even realize that they were doing well, that got them to the point they were at. And having a sense of humor and being able to almost laugh about mistakes, that to me is is a recipe for success for anybody that's working with a coach. But but again, for me, I basically insist on some uh, basic basic level of humor and, and appreciation for, again, some of the sometimes absurd leadership lessons that, that people learn throughout their careers. Yeah. Well, having the humility and openness to find comical relief in, in most situations is extremely healthy. At least it is for me. <laughs> I always, I'm a big believer in humor and just laughing and, and really trying not to take anything in life too serious. Cause fact of the matter is, is I just don't feel like people are grateful enough to where, where they're at and life's not as bad. And there's about probably over a billion people that anyone that I've talked to in my life those billions of people would give up their children to, to be in the situations we're in here, especially in North America. And so it's, I mean, you can laugh just about anything. And so, you know, when people take things too serious, I oftentimes scratch my head and try and figure out why, but I can appreciate and I can identify with the humor aspect of, of that approach. So, you know, again, kind of tying it back to energy, we've been in an interesting, you know, environment. We went through the 14, 15, 16 downturn, things started looking up. People started making just a little bit of money in 2018, 19 was looking promising. And then all of a sudden we get hit. You know, a lot of people left the industry, some of which are trying to get back or that are just having a tough time. But how do you see the energy landscape and, and someone who's coaching people to, you know, provide them with tools for success, maybe some hope, maybe some clarifying ideas as to the direction of, of which global energy is heading? What can you say to the audience in terms of how things have changed and how you're having to adapt to the new energy environment? Because things are transitioning quite rapidly. They are, and that could be dangerous. So when things are transitioning rapidly, you know, you, you can look at the positive, right? It's, you know, hey, rapid innovation and new technologies and people are embracing it and that's good. But one of the biggest things that I find in working with people is that they need to slow down. That's one of the biggest dangers is that you know, things are going to continue changing, but what is your ultimate objective, right? What do you, you know, and, you know, and that's beyond some sort of title or goal or even monetary amount, you know, what is it that's really driving you? Let's work backwards from there because all the, this constant churn, all of these, these constant changes, all the volatility that you've described, Justin, you know, that's not going anywhere, but too many people get caught up in that. And quite frankly, I think the, you know, not to, to generalize, but the nature of us in oil and gas is that we pride ourselves on being adaptable and making quick decisions and moving fast and all of this. But when you get caught up in that and when things keep moving faster and faster, it's very easy to lose sight of what your ultimate objective is. And that's what people need to do. They need to find ways to slow down. They need to find ways to keep, again, some sort of ultimate goal front and center so that they can reverse engineer it instead of just you know, plucking each, everything. Oh, that technology is cool. Let me go down this rabbit hole. You know, let me go take a data science class. Oh, I'm going to go to school for this. You know, some of those things are fine, but too often people are not making those decisions in a fully conscious manner. And I think that's probably one of the biggest threats right now. And that's you know probably one of the biggest things I would suggest to people is, you know, how could you elevate your awareness of everything that's going on? So you're not just, you know, running a, a mile a minute when you might not need to, or, running a mile a minute and you don't even, you know, when maybe it makes sense, but you don't even know where the heck you're running towards, right? That's the biggest thing I see right now is that yeah. I don't want to castigate the space or the, the pace rather of technology and things. I think it's great, but I think people, you know, ha have a tendency to get too caught up in that and, and again, lose sight of the bigger picture. 
And so why do you think that is? Have you recognized or observed any patterns within people in oil and gas? I mean, where, what do you see the biggest limiter is for folks in our industry? Well, I think probably the biggest limiter is the thing that, that has made this industry and the people in it so great. And that is this work ethic, this pride in getting the job done. Clearly that is, I mean, that is, that is something you want in your children. That's, that's something you want in all of your coworkers, but it also makes it difficult sometimes to take a step back and to recognize, you know, some of the, again, the, some of the softer, fluffier things that are maybe somewhat incompatible with an industry like ours, but which are necessary to, you know, put forth some sort of sustainable company or, or sustainable career. Because, you know, if you don't, again, things are going to keep changing no matter what. And if you're just so intent on just, just getting the job done, and you know, can't appreciate that that one job is part of you know thousands of jobs, if you will, you know, figurative and literal that you're going to do over the course of your career. You know, people are people with a again a, a better view of things, a better appreciation for the future and the bigger picture. You know, they're going to cash you up honestly, and they're going to put in place systems and teams that are going to be far more sustainable than the person who is just riding the coattails of a 10, 20, 30 year career where they've just you know, gotten it done. That's just not enough right now, Justin. And that's you know, quite frankly, what, what I see in a lot of individuals that I work with, not just, you know, collectively. So, and I think that ties nicely into, you know, what it really takes to be a sustainable leader in the oil and gas industry. And I know that's something that I, you know, you've either studied or that you are familiar with. So and I, you've probably touched on a lot of it throughout the conversation, but, but in just in general, to kind of get a good takeaway is, is, you know, how can people be sustainable leaders within the oil and gas industry? Well, within oil and gas, it's recognizing that you need to balance growth. And again, growth has become a dirty word, but you need to balance growth with protecting <laughs> yeah. what's important because not everything is worth protecting. You know, some things are worth holding on to, many things are not. So it's recognizing that some things just you just just need to toss them aside. Unfortunately, sometimes in companies, you need to toss, you know, people aside. I know that sounds horrible, but, you know, holding on to relationships that don't work anymore, you know, those two things are necessary for sustainability. It's recognizing what true growth is, recognizing what's important and what's not important. And if you could do that, then it makes it a lot easier to find yourself in a sustainable position because you're not holding on to these mindsets that, again, may have worked in the past. You know, you're not holding on to strategies that may have allowed companies and individuals to, you know, make a lot of money and have a lot of success, but, you know, they don't work anymore. And the faster that people can recognize that, the better off they'll be, quite, quite frankly, and, and the more sustainable of a career they'll be able to generate for themselves. Awesome. And one thing that kind of leads me into the next topic, and this was actually an idea of yours, which I thought was great, was, was talking about the leadership life, sort of leadership life cycle and how there's a parallel to that of the energy development life cycle. And it was really neat when I read the email, but I certainly want to, you know, you to describe what you meant and that way the listeners can also get to listen. Sure. So, you know, as I transitioned into the world of coaching and, and knowing, of course, that I was going to be focused on the energy industry, you start looking for parallels between all the leadership stuff that out there and you know, the industry that I've been a part of, the, the technical aspects of it, the strategic aspects of it, the global impact that our industry has. And again, you start looking for ways that they're connected. And what I found and have been able to practice since really discovering or rediscovering these things is that leadership very nicely parallels 
the energy life cycle. And so for my coaching, I'm going to give a quick rundown, but it basically is broken into five pillars, if you will. And the first of those is exploration. And then you have development, production, transportation or midstream, and then distribution or downstream. And again, those five phases, when you think about it from an energy standpoint, you need to do all of those and you need to have an awareness of all of those to, again, have this executive mindset that allows you to develop oil and gas assets. You can't just go out and explore and never produce or develop or move them to market. Likewise, it doesn't do any good to just have a pipeline company if there's no producers. You need to have a, a full view of that. And so too with leadership. So if we step through quickly, you know, that exploration step is really about recognizing what's your goal? What are you actually looking for? What is your, your ultimate purpose, if you will? What are you, you know, what are you exploring for, right? You don't just walk around aimlessly. No, you have some idea of, of what you're after. The development step, of course, is necessary once you've found something. You know, what is your strategy? How are you going to do that? And most importantly, and what I'm working with people is recognizing that there are approaches that might make sense in certain circumstances and approaches that don't in others. And we can talk about the growth thing again, right? There was a time and a place where grow at all costs made sense to investors or, or at least to, <laughs> to certain investors and, and to the people that were trying to you know, capitalize and you know, boost their profits. But that approach doesn't work anymore. So what is your development strategy? And is it still appropriate for, for you as you're leading your teams or again, even as an individual, as you're approaching your you know, if you're in transition, for example, in between jobs, you know, are you taking an approach that makes sense? Or, you know, do you have some stale development strategy that really doesn't work anymore? The third pillar, if you will, in the energy life cycle is production, because it doesn't do you any good if you don't produce results. But the biggest challenge that I see with people is that the results that they produce, you know, don't always speak for themselves. And this is especially true when people make a mistake, right? You might, you know, you might do something that leads to, you know, some not very pretty results. But the reality is you may have made actually a good decision, you know, but sometimes good decisions don't lead to good results and vice versa, right? You know, sometimes we put these people on a pedestal, you know, because of X, Y, Z that's on their resume or their LinkedIn profile. But in reality, you know, their approach isn't sustainable and, you know, they're not necessarily the, the best, most effective leader. So those are the first three steps there to, you know, in that energy life cycle. Moving on to the fourth one there, if we just want to keep rolling through here is, Transportation. Yeah, no, please. And, and again, I mean, I'll, I'll take a pause here. I, clearly, you know, we're running through these things. You know, this is a framework that, you know, is the basis for what could be, you know, a 12 month coaching engagement, whether it's a group coaching engagement or one on one. So you can imagine that all of these, you know, all of these, the coaching things that we could talk about for hours, if not days or weeks, you know, they all fit very nicely into this framework. And, you know, it's not always as linear as I'm stepping through things, which is where, again, you know, coaching comes into play, you know, recognizing that, you know, B doesn't always follow A and C doesn't always follow B, et cetera. But in this case, we are going to follow the script here. And that fourth phase is transportation or midstream, because once you've produced results, of course, you got to get them from point A to point B. It doesn't do you any good if you've, you've invested all that time and energy and money if you can't get them to market. So this fourth phase, this transportation phase is really about communication because that's what you're doing, right? You're communicating your results to all your stakeholders, right? Whether it's shareholders, internal employees, you know, external agencies, suppliers, customers, whatever it happens to be. And communication obviously is key. But one of the things that can happen with communication, just like with pipeline networks, is that you could have corrosion. And corrosion can, of course, lead to catastrophe or uncontrolled releases. And the way that people communicate many times is corrosive. And the problem is that many times leaders don't appreciate how corrosive it is. So in this phase of leadership, 
which some would argue might be the most important one. It's recognizing the ways that you're communicating, the ways that your communications can be corrosive. And on the flip side, the ways that your communication strategy might lead to some bottlenecks, right? If, if you've relied on one way of communication, and we could take the pandemic, for example, right? You know, if you've relied on those face-to-face communication techniques and being able to look somebody in the eye and, you know, now all of a sudden you're relegated to more email or Zoom where, you know, you might not be, you might have them in front of you, but it's not quite the same. You know, you need to be able to adapt. And that, that applies, especially in larger organizations where leaders have to rely on a network of other leaders to relay their message. And if there's bottlenecks there, their message isn't going to reach their intended destination. So spend a lot of time on that, draw a lot on my own experience working with senior leaders and even, you know, writing scripts for earnings calls and helping prepare for Q&A and recognizing that you need to be adaptable in your communication strategy. And, and again, that's really one of the areas where at least I spend the most of my time with people. And finally, the fifth and final phase of the energy life cycle is distribution. So who is your customer? Where is your product going? And clearly you need to have an understanding of them and an understanding of really all five phases to deliver what your client expects or what your customer expects or what your internal employees expect. But the biggest thing that happens for a lot of leaders is that they become viewed as a commodity because the reality is in the oil and gas industry, of course, you know, what do we do? We sell commodities. Our product at the end of the day is no different from anyone else's product, at least in an unrefined state, right? A a molecule of methane is exactly the same as somebody else's. So how do you differentiate your product? How do you reach different markets? And from a leadership standpoint, it is crucial that all of your stakeholders recognize that there is something a little bit different about you, that there is something that differentiates you as a leader. Or, you know, quite frankly, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, you know, there's something different about you than all of the other, you know, millions of of people that, you know, might have the same resume, if you will, or the same LinkedIn profile. And you need to find the ways to differentiate yourself, not just for self-preservation purposes, not just to hang on to your job, but because when you're a differentiated leader, it leads to confidence. People have more confidence in you when they know that you're not just spouting some, you know, leadership mumbo jumbo that you read in a book or you're not just following some defined script, you're able to think and you're conscious of, again, all five steps in the energy life cycle, if you will, and all five steps in leadership, you're, you're fully aware of this. That's one of the biggest differentiators is being aware. So that's what that fifth, fifth piece is, is, is avoiding becoming a commodity when you, know, you don't have to be, you can differentiate yourself. So again, that's a, it's a quick summary of the, the five pillars there that you know, really fuel all of the coaching that I do. And, and, you know, a lot of the conversations, even, you know, one-off non-coaching conversations I have, a lot of it is weighed against that, that framework. Yeah. And I really love how you tied in the energy life cycle to, you know, the leadership life cycle. And I think the parallel there for people within oil and gas, it's, it's always easier to connect the dots when you can relate it to something that you're familiar with. And like, as you were running through those things, I mean, I've, I'm an upstream guy, but I mean, I've been in the industry long enough. I, I know a little bit about probably a lot of it and it just, it, it clicked. Right. And so I think that's really creative and thoughtful and strategic of you to do that, which I think it probably attracts, you know, individuals in, within obviously energy and, and can really see the value in how you've done that and how you've set it up. And yeah, it's interesting because you said it's not always A, B, C, D, E or one, two, three, four, five. It, you know, and especially in oil and gas, it's, you may have a plan, but by the time you you actually execute that plan, you could pretty much crumple it up and throw it in the trash because it's it ultimately sometimes just you know step A can completely go sideways. The next thing you know, you've got to you know rewrite the whole script. So again, tying it back to being adaptable and and nimble is what we've always been able to do. 
with the interest of time, I mean, there, we could have dove into probably a lot of that, but I do want to highlight, you know, what you've also been doing aside from the coaching, which I'm sure ties into this is your, your podcast. You've been doing that now for about a year. How, how long have you been doing it? And, and how did you get started in that? And to briefly go over that, if you would. Sure. So it started, I think it was March of 2020. So it was right, right around St. Patrick's Day. So right, right when things started getting shut down. So I kicked off the podcast, The Energy Detox, with the idea of, one, it's from a name standpoint, you know, there's a lot of toxicity that can, of course, erupt from a leadership standpoint. Certainly in our industry, there's a lot of external toxicity. So the idea was, you know, to help people navigate that, you know, set aside the toxicity and, you know, focus on ways to keep moving forward, right? Flush away all that, you know, junk, if you will, leverage what tools they have within themselves and also give people some access to some of the tools and the mindsets that have helped leaders push through situations like this, you know, as unprecedented as it may have been, you know, the reality is that there's a lot of patterns that, that, you know, you can pluck from, from existing leaders who have, you know, have been through some, been through some stuff. So that was the intent of the podcast. For the most part, the episodes are actually just me talking. The first season was largely scripted. So it's bringing in a little bit more, I don't want to say academic flavor, but, you know, stepping through in a little bit more detail with some structure, some given theme, you know, a lot of the things that I work on. Now, the funny thing is that's almost the antithesis of coaching because in coaching, unlike this conversation or my podcast, my job is often to just shut up and ask the occasional, you know, good question to help, you know, to help draw out of people, you know, what they already know and what they think and what they can do. So the podcast is a little bit opposite of that, but the intent is the same, which is to give people some tools to help people think a little bit more clearly and make better decisions. Because again, that's my job as a coach is to help meet people make better decisions. So the goal of the podcast is to weave in some energy industry themes, some leadership themes to do it in a little bit more depth than, you know, say the, the couple minute run through that I just did of those five pillars. And that first season was also a way for me to park a lot of these different ideas in a long form way so that I can come back to them. So I can point people to them, you know, it's yeah. qu- certainly quicker and easier than, well, maybe not quicker and easier uh, given my uh, anal retentiveness when it came to, to editing them and, and stripping them out. But it was my intent was that this would be easier than say writing a book or, or going, you know, full bore writing articles and everything. And, but to still have some of this long form stuff in place. So that was season one, season two has been more dynamic live. They're all recorded live now. So LinkedIn live YouTube, and you know, that has the ability to bring other people into the conversation and, and to make it again, a little bit more dynamic and less scripted, which is again, a little bit more representative of what coaching is. Coaching is unscripted. It is live and it should be catered towards you know, the audience, if you will, which typically is, is an audience of one. So, yeah, no, that's that's great, and I think what a better time to do it, like you said, in March <laughs> of 2020. And so, it's you know, what what's I guess what have you been pleasantly surprised since doing the podcast? And then what what is something that surprised you, or something that's challenged you that you didn't foresee? Initially? The pleasant surprise is the number of people that said, you know, look, sounds like you're you know you're you're talking about me, which. Again, is dangerous when you're just doing a you know a monologue, if you will. Now there are times, admittedly, where you know certainly there's people in mind that I have when I'm writing these things. So sometimes it is it's more than more than just a coincidence. But I've been surprised by the number of people it resonated with beyond you know even what I had in mind. You know, you think you're you're talking about a specific person and a specific challenge, but then for somebody else to to hear that it resonated for them, you know, facing something else has been has been nice. As far as the challenge, I think it was in that first season of the amount of time that I wound up putting into it. And again, a lot of lessons learned, learned about that. We can, can, again, probably talk about podcasting for hours as well, but it was, you know, recognizing and being conscious of, Hey, look, I'm going to put in this time 
And I want this to be a more polished product than it maybe would be if I went, you know, more of a freer interview style route. And, you know, and at the yep. end of that first season, I was able to consciously say, you know what, I'm okay that I, that I put that time in, but now it's time to shift gears. The juice ain't worth the squeeze anymore in terms of, of having these, again, overly scripted, almost academic style podcasts. And so it, it was a challenge, but it was also a learning opportunity to say, look, you know, just like we said at the beginning, time is precious. And, you know, where can I get the most bang for my buck with my time? It wasn't in the same style of podcast that I had done for, for season one. Right. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting because podcasting, there's no, it's such a white canvas and I feel like it's just evolved and it's just like any other social media platform or any other platform for that matter. It's like, you know, things start off one way and then ultimately end up another as things evolve and, and really the market dictates how those evolve. And is it, you got to try it all. You got to tease it and see it and understand the trends and where they're going. And, but like you said, at the end of the day, if you've got a library of material, you know, that's partially why we did the AES drilling fluids, the, the technical podcast. Cause I mean, podcasting is such a gene- generic term. Someone says, Oh, I'm starting a podcast. I mean, that could mean a thousand different things, but the fact that you've done it and it's, you know, in 20 years from now, people can still reference it. I mean, you can reference the material. It's certainly, you know, it's important to have it on there and, and have done that in learning and adapting. And, and one thing too, that, that I've realized is it's good to celebrate you know, the wins and the, Hey, congrats and the likes and the shares, but you know, don't get too high on the highs because you won't be able to handle the lows. And, you know, I know there's been, you know, I've looked at our trends and, and seen where it goes. And for me, it's not necessarily the numbers, although it gives me a frame of reference as to, to, you know, who and what's listening. So it kind of, it's a scoreboard, I guess, but I try not to get too caught up in it. Cause for me, it's like, as long as there's one or two people that listen to it, including my mom, cause she learns things then. And for me, it's a win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think it comes back to understanding the why and the purpose behind doing it, which it sounds like you value educating people, helping people, and you have a very selfless mentality and approach when it comes to it. And so, you know, I applaud you. I mean, you know, you haven't, I know you've been, yeah, you're over a year now. So which most people don't get a year in and they, they don't get enough likes or, you know, subscriptions. And then they decide, Oh, that's not good enough. But in this world, it takes patience and it's constantly, how can you add value to the audience? And so I think you've, you've certainly have that in mind and, you know, it's, it's cool to see. I, like I said, I always enjoy having other podcasters on because although it's a huge network of people, the energy podcasting network is pretty small still. So we all run around and, and know each other. And, you know, I saw you were on JP's podcast there. And so, you know, you've, you've made your rounds and, and so have I, but it's cool to see. And so, you know, I, I, encourage you and I hope nothing but the best and success for you and your podcast and obviously the executive coaching. But with the interest of time, uh, I do want to close out with, I'll ask one last question. It's more, you know, on the personal side of things, but what's something about yourself that not many people know about, you know, you got any hidden secrets that you'd like to unleash to the podcast world? One that I guess some people might know about, but I enjoy fielding calls from some of those scammers that'll call you, you know, telling you that you're uh, you know, your, your Amazon account's been hacked <laughs> yeah. or they're offering, you know, a new credit card rate. So I enjoy fielding those calls and, and almost turning it into a coaching session sometimes and stringing them along. And, and again, always in a nice way, in a positive <laughs> way, but, but yeah, I, I get yeah. a kick out of that. It's, you know, sometimes I'll see that, you know, a number that I know is going to be one of those and, and sometimes I'll pick them up and, and have some fun. So yeah, an interesting you hobby, but certainly an enjoyable one. I love that. And it's funny because I've done that same thing. And when it first started, a lot of times people would call and they would say, Hey, do you have, or your computer's been hacked? 
are you sitting by your computer? And you know, for like the first 20, I was like, click. And I was like, I, I was, I think I was driving and I had nothing but time. And I was like, I'm going to jack with this person. So I, yeah, yeah. I got my laptop and they're like, okay, open it up, turn it on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing that. Okay. Do this. And they like walked me through the, the series of steps and I got to it and, and then I let them all that I want. And then I totally like went, I completely changed the direction of the conversation and you could tell they're getting frustrated. And as soon as you, as soon as they kind of think that you're messing with them, a lot of times they'll click because I've done that with the computer thing. And then people say, yeah, I'm calling about your 2015 blah, blah, blah car, which is, I haven't had it for like years. And like, you know, this is a warranty department. How many miles do you have on your car? And I'll always give some obnoxious amount of miles. They'll say 7,832. And then they'll say, sorry, repeat that. And And then I'll repeat like some obnoxious mileage number. And then then I'll say, does, does that still work? And is that, is that okay? And and then a lot of times they'll hang up, but it's funny because you're the only other person I know that's like, dumb. yeah, again, I don't know. <laughs> so what, what, what do you normally do? With- <laughs> and, I, and I will say, I will admit that that's the point where sometimes I turn on the, I'll, I'll start recording the conversation. So I've, I've compiled a couple of them. Some of them don't, they're not very safe for, for public consumption the way they go, but they're, I always try to be positive. Oh, that's so I often, awesome. again, try to turn it into a career conversation <laughs> to help them, you know, maybe transition into something that doesn't involve scamming people. And every once in a while, every once in a while, you'll get somebody that actually like, you know, kind of bites and admits that, yeah, well, what, well, what are you, what are you thinking? Like, well, what do you think I'm good at? You, to, you know, you are persistent, you know, you clearly you have a knack for, you know, you know, sticking to it, no matter what is thrown at you. And, you know, I think we can leverage that. So, you know, sometimes again, it's, it's a lighthearted way to, to hone my craft, yeah. if you will. So I, I want to make sure I'm clear here. This isn't just, you know, taking advantage of these unfortunate people that are, that are stuck doing this. I am out there to help in any way I can. Okay. So I'm certainly on the opposite end of the spectrum. (laughs) I don't do it as a coaching environment. I do it strictly for like self entertainment, but I think you're onto something. And I think if there's a huge opportunity here, if you record them and you actually create like a library of these and upload them, I think you would have a mass following. And I think you could like build on that. I think it'd be hilarious. I'll tell you what. So the fact that you've (laughs) saved them, some you I'll shoot you a link and a password after this. There is an exclusive website there that I think Justin, <laughs> I, I think after this conversation, I think yes. go ahead and, and and do here. We'll we'll see if it's we'll see if it's something that could generate some money. Please. We'll we'll talk offline and see if it's if it's some sort of avenue that we can go down. Yeah. Oh, there's you would get so many people getting the biggest kick out of it. And the fact that you're doing it to help people is just amazing. And so, like, because most people just don't want their time wasted, right? But the fact that you actually set aside some some unscheduled time to try and coach people that are scamming people is amazing. I think it's absolutely awesome and you should totally run with it. But with that said, I want to respect your time. You know, it's 930 here in Houston and the day's just getting started. So I'm sure we both have a lot to take on today. But before we log off, I do want to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. 
the first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events. The first being a Cognite webinar titled, From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 11.30 to 12.30. And lastly, we have the US Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think we only scratched the surface, but hopefully we can continue building on what we've started here today. And I wish you nothing but the best, but what's the best way for people to reach out to you to get know, to know more about your coaching? I mean, any links you have, I can put in the show notes. So you don't necessarily have to spell them out, but I mean, sure, LinkedIn, your website, the podcast, anything else that I can throw in the show notes? No, that covers everything. LinkedIn, websites, and even an old-fashioned phone call once in a while. I, I Clearly, I, I appreciate those on occasion, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be sure not to hang up on you, even if you sound a little sketchy yeah. there at the, the outset. And for the audience, if you're strapped for cash, that's your way in to get some free coaching. Pretend you're a scammer. Joe will then follow through with coaching you, and then you'll have had a free session. So you just expose yourself, Joe. You may get a huge influx of scamming calls, but are people within energy actually trying to get some coaching advice? <laughs> well, I look forward to it, Justin. Thanks a lot. Hey, you bet. And for all the audience, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.